So my name is Cameron Schweitzer. I'm a friend of your pastor, John. So John, if you're watching, buddy, thank you for letting me come this morning. So uh, I'm the director of enrollment at Gateway Seminary. I don't know how many of you have heard from your pastor about Gateway Seminary, but we are the Southern Baptist Seminary, so your seminary that is just down the freeway from you guys in Ontario. And there I serve as the director of enrollment where I've been for six years, about two and a half years in my current role, and before that I was one of the guys who did enrollment. And that's actually how I met your pastor. Uh, so he and I had lunch uh, at a dog house in the valley in 2015 when he showed up and a friend that had set this meeting up together actually didn't show up. So John and I like to joke that he and I had a blind date and ate hot dogs. And we've been good friends ever since. But just in case you guys aren't aware, uh, Gateway exists to shape leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. And we couldn't do what we do as a seminary if it wasn't for faithful churches like First Baptist Church, Walnut Valley, faithfully giving to the cooperative program. So thank you guys for doing what you do to support the seminary and to support your international mission board and your North American mission board. So from all of us at Gateway, I want to say thank you. And John has told me that there may be a couple here who are interested in seminary. So you need to come talk with me. And anyone who wants to learn more about taking some classes or getting a degree, I can speak with you about that uh, extensively. Uh, and I'm offering lunch to anyone who wants to talk with me more about that and take classes at Gateway. <laughs> Suddenly the whole church will come. Anywho, but that's what I do professionally. Uh, but one of my great joys in life is getting to share the word with you all. And that's what I'm so privileged to be able to do here this morning. So thank you for that. Thank you for your worship. Thank you for your prayers and thank you for your support and how great it is that we get to serve a God who has loved us and sent his son into the world to save us from our sins. Now we're going to think through that this morning as we look at God's word, but before we do so, would you join me in a word of prayer as we ask our God to bless this time and to anoint his word. Our great God and the highest of heavens, O oh Lord, who are men and women that you are mindful of us. But yet, O oh Lord, in your sovereign grace and mercy, you set your love upon us, not because of any good that we have done or merit that we have offered to you, but solely because of your sufficient and awe-inspiring grace. Lord, we do thank you that through Christ and in the power of your Spirit, we get to gather here this morning as the body of Christ, both one and many, from many diverse lives and backgrounds. Oh Lord, but we come now at your cross and at your feet humbly asking you to edify us and teach us through your holy word. Oh God, and I do pray that I would be a fit vessel who would clearly and powerfully in the power of your spirit speak your word, oh God, and that your saints would be edified. And if there are any who are here this morning who do not know you, O oh Lord, that you would open their eyes so they would see the beauty of Jesus and the ugliness of their sin, and that they would turn to you and embrace Christ as their Savior. Oh God, would you build your church, we pray. Speak, O oh Lord, for we are listening. Amen. One of the things that fascinates me is thinking through how people in our culture or individuals in our culture think about religion or think about the things of God. And what fascinates me in particular is that despite the efforts of many in our culture, you've seen them, you've heard of them, the atheists and the humanists, the secularists, the 
people in power try to remove God from our country. They try to remove God from the discourse of this nation, from the discourse of our culture, from the discourse of our own lives. But what's still fascinating to me is despite the efforts of these people to remove God and any speech of God, as a new survey just showed, more and more people believe that there is a God. There's a general consensus that God does, in fact, exist. And what's interesting to me is if you've spoken with anyone outside the church about who they think God is, I think among people in America, there's sort of general consensus about who God is. And now what I'm not saying, though, is this general American consensus is something to be applauded, because I think that it's inherently misguided. But what is interesting to know, though, is that for those who claim to believe in God, both inside and outside the church, there is this sort of widespread agreement as to how we ought to conceive of God. And now you've heard this on the news, you've heard this on TV shows or sitcoms or in personal conversations anytime that people talk about God. Let me ask you, if you were to abbreviate the sort of prevailing theology of God in America, what would you say? It'd probably be this, that God is love. That's our culture's prevailing theology. Simply and succinctly. You ask most Americans how they define God, they say that, that God is love. He loves me unconditionally, and he really just wants me to be happy. And now, don't get me wrong, friends. God is love. That is a well-established biblical truth. But what you typically do not see, however, is that those same Americans would eagerly mine the Bible to discern what it means for God to be loved. So instead, such people fashion this God of love into their own image and into their own likeness. And if you speak with them about this God of love that they claim to love, they would say that this God of love loves them by always agreeing with them. That God never says anything harsh. He always wants to make them happy. He commends their pursuit of whatever they think will make them happy. He wants them to be free from any pain. He would never, ever judge or condemn them for their sin. And then most importantly, we are the center of his universe. We are the apple of his eye. We are his most important treasure. He, in fact, needs us to be happy. And so these people would say that this God of love loves them when he makes most, when he makes much of them and gives them what they want. But friends, as you know, such a God is a far cry from the Lord God Almighty, who the Bible says sits in heaven and scoffs at the ravings of men, who gives life and breath to all things, who holds all things together by the power of his word and whose hand cannot be swayed nor his counsel thwarted. So it breaks my heart that this crooked, man-centered theology has spread throughout the church like a ravenous disease and has infected her with an unbiblical view of God. Such an unbiblical view of God is no different than what you could find by listening to Oprah. For many in the American church, this sickness has so darkened the eyes of the flock that they cannot discern their theological left hand from their right. So the church will say and sing things that are far afield from truthfully describing our blessed God and Father. And I might step on some toes by saying this, but remember... Just a couple of years ago, American Christians popularized a song that said, and I quote, God's love is reckless. 
And in so doing, they uncritically equated God's love with the antics of a teenage boy. For God's love is not reckless. So how far has the church fallen from truly understanding the Bible's depiction of a God who's sovereign and who's wise and who's passionate in his loving pursuit of sinful men and women? So like the Bereans, friends, we need to diligently search the scriptures to uncover the orthodox portrait of the God who is love. And uncovering such a portrait is precisely what I want us to do this morning as we examine that text that we read from 1 John 4. We want to learn from the disciple whom Jesus loved what he would have to teach us about God's love. This is the question we want to know the answer to. How does the God of love love us? That's the question we want to answer, is how does the God of love love us? We want to do this so that we might be able to rightly conceive of the love of God and then be changed in our hearts as we appropriate that sweet truth into our souls. And we heard, but let me say again, our text, and I'm reading from the NASB, and I should have had you guys... Uh, It's okay, that's my fault. So John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Friends, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Now in this text, we're going to focus on God and what He does that we might better understand His love. I will unpack John's description of God's saving actions in this text in the historical and logical order of the time in which God accomplishes them. And there are eight such actions that we are going to look at in this text. And after we see these eight actions, we're going to summarize what John tells us about God's love and then see how what he teaches us about the love of the loving God informs how we ought to live in love. So first, John tells us this, that God is love. And that's a simple but yet profound statement that ought to reorient our thoughts. And friends, this reorientation is much needed after the events of this last year, is it not? having been ravaged by a pandemic as well as societal and economic turmoil. In a year such as this, it is easy, far too easy for many to believe that God is not love, but that he is evil, he is indifferent, he is callous. Many would think that surely God is not good, nor is he loving. But the Bible rebukes such unbelief. For John tells us in no uncertain terms that God is love. But not merely that God loves or that he does loving things periodically or that every once in a while he sort of musters up the emotional strength to love. No. Love is God's very nature. For God to be is for him to be love. God is love and love is God. 
Love can by no means be separated from God as light can be separated from brightness. For just as light is bright, so too God is love. Second, before we are yet able to fill in such a significant statement with our own sense of its signification, ascribing to God some sort of vague sentimentality or some sort of moral pacificity, John tells us explicitly what it means for God to be love and how God's love is manifested. In verse 9, John says this, By this, by this, the love of God was revealed, that God sent His only Son into the world. Friends, that is how God, the God of love, manifests His love. It's by sending the Son of His love into the world. So God loves you, friend, by sending you his son. And remember that this is not merely any son, but it is the son of God, the beloved of the Father, the Father's one and only begotten. He who is God and who was God from the beginning. This is the one whom the Father did not withhold from the world. The God of love, friends, has sent the son of love into the world that his love might be manifested to a loveless world. By this, by this, all the world knows that God is love. He has lovingly given us his beloved Son. The third point is this. John says that the Son of love that is sent into the world to display the love of God is sent as its Savior. Verse 14 says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So God's love and the world's salvation are intimately united in the Son of Love. That is to say, the way in which the God of love displays His love is by sending His beloved Son to be the world's Savior. That God, in His love, sent His Son of Love to be the Savior means that you need a Savior. You need a Savior. Further, that means each of us needing a Savior means that we are in need of saving. And that you are in need of saving means you cannot save yourself. So simply put then, friends, God is love because He sends His Son of love to save those who cannot save themselves. Fourth, John highlights why we need saving. In verse 10, he says, it is not that we have loved God. And he also talks about being sent into the world for our sins. So friends, we need saving because we do not love God. And we sin against the God whom we do not love. Remember, the Bible says that the greatest commandment is what? To love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But John says that we do not love God. So we fail to love God, which means then that each of us have broken God's greatest commandment. And failing to heed God's greatest commandment is by no means a small failure. For God is by no means a small God, and the commandment which is called the greatest is no means insignificant. So our unlovely hearts have failed in their moral obligation to love the God of love who is altogether lovable. 
In addition, John states that we have sinned over and above our failing to love God and obey his greatest commandment. Our sins testify. They testify against us that our loveless hearts do not love God's lovely law and its rules of love. Such sin, then, is by no means insignificant, for the Bible says that sin is unrighteousness. It is lawlessness. It is treason. It is rebellion. It is death. That is why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And that death that our sins deserve is not merely physical death, though. No, for this death is the death of all death that is reserved for all sinners in the lake of fire, where it is said that the fire is not quenched. Further, this sin of yours has made it so that you have been separated from God, and that God has now hidden He has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. So that means there is a chasm, a chasm fixed between you and God. And you cannot bridge this chasm through your own effort. Your many tortured pleadings will not make God turn his deaf ear towards your cries. You, left to your own sin and sinful devices, will remain separated from God forever. And then one day, you will receive the just punishment that is due your sin. So you need a Savior. But, number five, but God. God, in His love, has addressed our greatest need by sending His beloved Son of love to be the propitiation for our sins. And do you know what that means? That Jesus is our wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Now, the Bible says that the one who sins is the one who is to die. And God, as the Bible makes clear, judges uh, judges sin by slaying the sinner. And sin, friends, merits punishment. And as we have said, the, the punishment that is merit is the second death. And the judge of all the earth must do what is right and punish iniquity. The king of all the nations must punish rebellious subjects. But God desires to show mercy. He is a God of love who the word says does not love or delight in the death of wicked and the wicked. So he desires that all might turn from their wickedness. But you know what the Bible says, right? That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For the one who has sinned deserves to die. So the son of love has taken on our flesh to ransom us. He stood in the breach, and the Bible says that he received God's rod, that the rod of judgment was blown upon his back that it might be removed from ours. The word says that Christ took our many sinful sorrows. He bore our many iniquities and the transgressions against which we have sinned against our God. He took upon his shoulders that he might be judged in our place. Get this. The Savior of love was pierced through with the God of love's vindictive sword. The Son of love was smitten by love's divine wrath, and he was crushed by love's terrifying judgment. That propitiatory sacrifice has propitiated love so that love's judgment need not fall on those to whom it is rightfully due. Friends, so the Son of love saves loveless sinners by being slain by the God of love. The Son of love saves us loveless sinners by being slain by the God of love. 
Sixth, notice though how the Savior of love saves loveless sinners. In verse 7, John states that the one who loves has been born of God. And verse 9 states similarly that the Son was sent into the world so that we might live through him. So the Son of love does not merely manifest God's love by being a propitiation for our sins. No, even more than that, he is the living one who unites the dead to his indestructible life. For Christ did not merely bear God's vindictive judgment into the grave. No, Christ, it is said, defeated death. He led the great captor captive. His death defeated death, and he destructively, as I like to say, defanged death's deadly dagger by his sword, pierced side. So Christ, friends, is the risen one. He's the king of life and light who gives life to those to whom he is pleased. And as a consequence, then, if God causes such people to be born again, to live through Christ, the living Christ, then you know what that means. We are dead. You are dead. And we are in need of life, spiritual life. So rightfully, then, the Apostle Paul states that those who are in the flesh are dead in their sins. So unless your lifeless, loveless soul is born again, the beloved Son says that you cannot enter his kingdom of love. For your and mine, dead and vile hearts are ill-fit for his kingdom of life and love and holiness. So be not surprised then that Christ says, unless you are born from above, you cannot see his world of love. But, but, the God of love in love gives us his spirit, so that through the blessed Son, we might be born again by love. And Christ gives his new life through his spirit of love to all who would receive him. You must be born again, Christ would say, and I will bear you anew through the spirit of my love. Seventh, friends, see how those newly transformed by love are enabled to live new lives of love. John states this, Let us love one another, for love is from God, The one who does not love does not know God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, but God and his love would remain in us and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved us. The one who loves God must, must. The love of God in you means you must love one another. So get that. Those who were once loveless sinners have been transformed to such an extent by God's love that now they are commanded to live lives of love patterned after the one who is love. In fact, John reasons that the loveless now turned lovers have been so thoroughly transformed by love that he expects them. Nay, in fact, he commands them to love one another. That is how thorough the Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle John believes that your transformation through love has occurred, that he can command you to do the very thing which just a few verses before he said you cannot do. So friends, be fully persuaded that John says you must do the thing which you in your flesh cannot do in your own power or strength. What, what you were once defined by your inability to do, I now expect you to do. For you are now a son and daughter of love. Lastly, 
John makes a profound statement of what becomes of those who've been so transformed by love to become lovers themselves. He says this, if, if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. And I'm going to add a little insertion. By his love being perfected in us, we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So not only has the God of love sent his son of love to save loveless sinners from love's judgment, and not only has love transformed the loveless into lovers by his love, more amazingly yet, love himself promises that he will abide in us and never leave his little tiny abode. So friends, the God of love gives the spirit of love through the beloved son who perfects love's love in us. So the love of God is in us and we are in the God of love. And we, as Jonathan Edwards would say, is we will be lost in love until we become one with he who is love. From age to age, all is love, and love is all. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So John teaches us this, friends, about God's love. This is the answer to that question. What does John teach us about the love of God? What is the love of God? What does it mean for God to love us? It means this. God loves us by sending his Son of love to save those who do not love him, that they might be transformed by love to become lovers of God and of others. Let me say it again. That is what John teaches us about the love of God. God loves us by sending his son of love to save those who do not love him, that they might be transformed by his love to become lovers of God and lovers of others. That is what the love of God is, and that is what the love of God does. And let me mention just a few points of application in view of what John is teaching us. First, I, I don't know any of you, and I don't know where any of you are in your state before God. So I need to address those of you who may be here today who do not believe in this gospel of Christ, who do not love the loving God. You do not love, as the scriptures would describe him, the loveliest of all loves. You find no delight in the Lord. I need to speak to you because the Lord has a very clear desire for you today. You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in the crucified Son of Love. Do not be deceived by what the world would tell you. You are not okay with God, and God is not okay with you. You have rejected God. You have spurned His commandments. You have failed to love Him who is altogether lovely. Do not listen to the world, for the Bible says you have only merited everlasting punishment and judgment from love himself because you have not loved he who is love. Friends, this is why Jesus says that if you do not believe in the name of the Son, you will not see life. If you reject the Son, you are already condemned. Yes, you may live your whole life long striving For the kingdom of heaven. You may live your whole life living in accordance with your own moral commandments, but be not confused. God's wrath does abide on you because apart from Jesus Christ, you have no hope. The Bible says all your righteous works, the best that you can do, are but filthy rags before the Holy One of love. 
The Bible says that this sin of yours will soon sweep you away into the pit of darkness. But God, but God, friends, has sent His beloved Son into the world who's been condemned in your place. He's taken your sin upon His shoulders. He's borne God's judgment in your place. And He has defeated death and resurrected from the grave and now reigns on His throne of love and He's ready to pardon your sins. Just call on His name. And I invite you to partake this morning of that forgiveness. Would you not just receive the God's greatest gift of love? That's His Son. And enjoy Him and His beauty and His glory forever. That's His gift to you. So won't you come to Him? Would you not believe on Him? Would you not turn from your sins and receive Him and the life that He gives you? Receive His life of love. For you have earnestly sought that which you have never found a life of love and joy and peace. And God says, I have it for you through Christ. Come to me, receive me, and I will be your Savior. So friends, look up and gaze at your Savior. That is all you must do. Now church, here at Walnut Valley, the Scriptures would say that you must fight the fight of faith to believe that God loves you most when He works in such a way to give you more of his son. That is a fight of faith. Because remember, the world would say that God loves you by doing all that he can to give you what you want. And he will keep you free from pain and sorrow and heartache. But no, what we just learned from John is that God loves you most when he gives you his son of love. So friends, you cannot allow your mind to be conformed to the thinking of the world that would make you the center of God's love. Because God is the center of God's love. And then he invites us in, into his God-centered love through his son that we might love God as God loves God. That is the fight of faith that you must strive to fight. Because if you look to God to give you things that are ultimately not of God, that your desires are ultimately bereft of God, then that is not you looking to fulfill God's love in your life. Because God loves you. And in God loving you, he does not want to give you things that are bereft of him. For in so doing, he who is love would keep you from the most lovable and pleasing of all love. And the most pleasing and lovable of all loves is the lovely glory of his beloved son. Christ is where all love and hope and joy is found. So God wants to give you that in his son. So allow your mind to be transformed and renewed to believe that God loves you most when he gives you his son. You must believe that the greatest and most loving thing God can do for you is show you the glory of of Jesus Christ. Remember, John says that God sent his son into the world to save us, right? In John 3:16, to give us everlasting life, to give us eternal life. Have you ever asked the question, what does eternal life mean in John? If you follow him to John 17, John defines you for you what the love of God is and what eternal life is. Jesus says there in the high priestly prayer, Father, and this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So friends, what that means is that God's gift of eternal love through the Son of Love is to give you himself. It is to give you the Son. 
So I pray that you'd be so enamored with the glory of Christ that those around you would see that you have an incomparable love for he who is love and resides in that land of love. So Walnut Valley, won't you pray daily for love to show you more of his love as he give you more of his beloved son of love, as you'd see his glory through the pages of scripture and through the beauty of this earth and through the testimony of your own soul, that is when God will love you most. And that is when you will feel most loved by God. But you have to train your mind to remember that God loves you most when he gives you his son the most. And friends, we must also remember that knowing God's great love for us in his beloved son bends us. It bends us out away from ourselves to those around us. Love's working in us creates hearts of love that would want to lovingly point others to the son of love in the gospel. So when the spirit of love works in this church's heart and he would save you from selfish spirits that would naturally bend in on themselves and would naturally keep such a love hidden, the spirit of love releases love in you and through you that you might tell of his love to those around you. And do not forget then Christ's greatest command, uh, Christ's command when he says, love one another as I have loved you. Or even as John says here, since God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we ought to remember that if he who is love loves us most by giving us his son of love, then we, if we have been so loved by God, ought to love the lost and love our church and love our brothers and sisters in Christ by pointing them to the son of love. That's how you fulfill the law of love, is by loving Christ and being so loved by Christ and empowered by the spirit of love that you in love go share the beauty of Christ with all that you might be able to share him with. So friends, would you be the church in this city with the beautiful feet who would tell the good news of the gospel of love to a world who seeks so desperately to know love and to be satisfied in love? Friends, God loves us by sending his son of love to save those who do not love him, that they might be transformed by love to become lovers of God and lovers of others. That is what it means for God to love us. May he love us in such a way this day and all the days to come. Let us pray. O God in heaven, we thank you for your love, that you have saved us loveless sinners and made us lovers of you and of others. O God, fill our hearts, we pray, with your love and your joy and your peace, that we might be so enamored with who you are and what you have done, that we would need not need anything in the world. O God, your word says that in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Might we be like the deer who eagerly pants after you, O God. May we love you and love others as you, in fact, have loved us, O God, through Christ. Amen.